Okay, so I wanted to begin this evening with an oft-quoted um, phrase from the suttas, um, like this. The mind is luminous, but it is obscured by visiting defilements. And that word defilements in this case means patterns of thought or views or reactions, you know, the things that come into the mind. So there's this idea that the mind is somehow um, there, you know, it's there and it has some brightness to it, uh, like it does when the mind is very aware, but that there are obscurations in some sense that come in and uh, these things are not part of the, in this view, kind of not part of the natural um, way of the mind. You know, so when we have hindrances or other unwholesome states, they're somehow coming in like clouds or obscurations in front of the natural radiance of the mind. So in this way of seeing things, then the practicing you know, what we do through our practice is to weaken these visiting defilements so that the um, radiance of the mind is uh, revealed in some way. Some important part of the mind gets uh, uncovered through practice. And when they start to weaken, even just a little bit, you know, like what we can, like what we find during a typical meditation session we might see that they are not only darkening, you know, like the image kind of implies the mind is radiant, but it has these obscuring things. So we imagine that the, the brightness might get darkened a bit. But in addition, um, we will find that there is some distortion going on when we have these visiting defilements in our mind. So I think of it more like a darkened lens, if you will. So it is darkening, but it's also distorting in certain ways. And so then we often are living in the thrall, if you will, of certain distortions. And because of these, we have engaged in a lot of activities and built up certain habits that don't serve us. So darkening lens, if you will. So then, um, a key part of practice is to stop getting so caught up in our usual activities of mind, which are largely habituated and reactive. So the first form of mindfulness that we often learn is that we'll create an observer, right? So we create some way of watching our anger happening instead of uh, just falling in and becoming the anger. And then um, at first, this is kind of a battle, right? Because we have this idea that we're supposed to see it clearly, but um, we don't think it should be there in the first place because after all, we've been told to develop mindfulness instead of anger. So that must mean that anger is bad. So when the anger is there, then we're unhappy because that's not what's supposed to be there. And so then we have this judgment. So there's kind of a battle between, you know, the observer and the thing that's being observed. But then later, um, that's only the first form of mindfulness that we learn. And it's a very good one, of course. It's better than being completely wrapped up in 
all the doings of the mind, how we've been living before. So this is an improvement to have some kind of an observer in our mind. But later, uh, mindfulness shifts over time. It's not always the same thing. And later we come to have a more inclusive or accepting stance in mind. And uh, then we have mindfulness that's more like the field in which the workings of the mind can be known. You know, mindfulness has doesn't have so much this opposition to what's going on, but more um, uh, it doesn't have also any so many expectations or demands that things look a certain way. And then mindfulness is getting a little bit purer. It's being willing just to see actually what is there, to actually see what's there. And then we can be amazed maybe that uh, the anger can sometimes just let go under the um, power of the presence of mindfulness. We don't have to do metta in order to get through our anger. Um, we also don't have uh, judgment of the fact that it's there. We can actually just let anger fade naturally as it has to, it's conditioned. So it will fade over time uh, just by resting in mindfulness. So we have uh, mindfulness almost as a path of how to let things, these obscuring defilements in the mind, visiting defilements fade over time. So then um, the practice gets really interesting because then we can watch all the patterns of the mind, kind of like we watch animals in the wild um, and learn about them. You know, we watch the squirrels and the birds and the coyotes and everything else. Um, I went to a, uh, on a hike today at a park that includes a farm and we got to watch the goats and the sheep and the chickens and these rabbits, these enormous rabbits from Belgium. So, you know, there's a lot of interesting things you can learn just from watching animals. So that maybe that's why I'm thinking of it. And then, you know, as we do that more, as we're less and less uh, judgmental of things in the mind, then there's a tendency also for this awareness to become more continuous. So we have some continuity of mindfulness in our practice. So that reminded me of this, um, uh, these verses this, um, by Ajahn Chah about mindfulness. So he says, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. So there's a way in which mindfulness becomes like this. And we, um, you know, we're observing then kind of our own individual, personal, seemingly personal experience, our own little patterns of mind. But um, even though we're just watching our own experience, our own little limited way of seeing the world. Um, nonetheless, that we do, if we watch continuously enough and for long enough, we start to see some more general or sometimes called universal um, qualities that's shared by all experiences. So maybe it's a little bit of a, an article of faith, but 
our unique particular experience is always enough for us to discern the general universal patterns. You don't have to worry that you don't have enough um, diversity to your experience or enough, you don't have the right kind of experience that you're not gonna be able to, that you're, that you're not gonna be able to see these general patterns. You are actually, everybody's experience is good enough for that. But when we're using these distorting lenses, these distorting darkened lenses, we tend to miss the universal qualities. So I want to um, gather them together now in order to highlight them, as well as some of the distortions that operate such that we don't see them so clearly. So there are three um, of these that I wanna talk about tonight. And first we'll talk about them kind of in the traditional way that they're talked about. And then, but then I'm gonna kind of shade into um, a way of seeing them that's uh, maybe more helpful for practice you know? and yeah, see if it's interesting for you. So the first universal quality, and you won't be surprised by them probably if you've been practicing for a while, the first universal quality is that things are changing, right? This is the quality of impermanence or inconstancy. Um, and then the associated distortion that goes with it is that we tend to regard what is impermanent as permanent. Now, this can be a mistake that we make, essentially. So the, the Pali word for this, some of you probably know, is anicca. And I might just say impermanence as I'm talking about it, but it includes just change or fluctuation or inconstancy. And the Buddha also spoke often in terms of arising and passing. You may have heard that phrase also. So it's hard to overemphasize how important this is in early Buddhism. It's really considered an important and very deep insight. Now you might wonder when I say it so dramatically, what exactly is so special about that? I mean, everybody knows that things change. If you go out on the street and you ask somebody who is not a Buddhist practitioner, maybe they've never meditated and you just say, well, what do you think? Do things change? They're inconstant, they change. I think almost everybody would say, well, yeah, of course things change. So this is, doesn't seem that uh, dramatic and profound. This must not be a very profound religion if it, this is what it thinks is important, just that things change. But let's, let's look more carefully. Uh, there are these interesting lines uh, from the Dhammapada. Better than 100 years lived without seeing the arising and passing of things is one day lived seeing their arising and passing. So that might get our attention. You know, this seems like it's considered very, very important. It has such a, an important um, you know, power in our, in our practice. So that might get our attention. But we can then begin to consider, well, if it's so important, do I actually know that all the time? And despite it being so obvious, we actually don't see it in many instances. So how often have you been shocked or dismayed or outraged that things end or break or change? Um, you know, I was at a, a event last week where just after the speaker started, all the lights went out because the power had gone off and it was not what we were expecting during that uh, talk. 
but and then the, of course the microphone went out also um, and so it was uh, ended up being delivered in the dark by shouting loudly I wasn't the speaker fortunately um, but you know we just we adapted but it was certainly people weren't upset about that but it was um, nonetheless it was a change but um, also you know there are times when we think that something has gone wrong you know if it's our, our car or our house or our relationship um, we think that shouldn't change or it shouldn't change in this way uh, however it's changing and so we can also begin to then notice okay wait a minute if I don't always believe it because I'm shocked by it what about my behavior do I act like I believe it and we realize oh we don't actually um, I have a friend who's Italian and she tells me that the cities that are surrounding uh, Mount Vesuvius, which is an active volcano, number uh, have a population total of about 2 million people. And there are not adequate escape roads out of this area. And this is a real thing. You know, back in 79 CE, the city of Pompeii was destroyed by the volcanic eruption from Mount Vesuvius. And yet in the interim time, uh, all the cities have built up to this much larger population than was there in the Roman times. So it's clear that we're not always acting in line with our understanding. Also, we see um, uh, other people dying, but we don't always remember that it will happen to us too. I know some of you have a, a death awareness practice, but it's not common that humans have such a practice. So there's another verse from the Dhammapada that says, death sweeps away the person obsessed with gathering flowers as a great flood sweeps away a sleeping village. So the being obsessed with gathering flowers um, is a metaphor for um, chasing after sense pleasures. I'll talk about that one next. And the sleeping, of course, the sleeping village is that we're, we don't always pay attention this image was very powerful, I suppose, for the ancient Indians, because, you know, in India, floods really do sweep away villages as a regular occurrence. Um, so I used to volunteer for a hospice, and I was, you know, sitting for, with people who were dying, and it's, it's very beautiful to do that, and it's also, you know, it's beautiful, however, however it unfolds for a person, but I do remember being intrigued that I would encounter people who were well into their 90s um, and were now on hospice and were a little bit outraged that they were dying even then and they, they were they weren't ready they weren't done and so but nonetheless you know this is how nature goes so you know there's even a sutta where uh, a person dies and uh, is asked uh, I guess as they're wandering toward their next life, you know, did you not notice that there were other people dying? And did you not think this would happen to you? And the person has to say sheepishly, no, I was negligent. I did not understand that. So you now we just have to notice in our mind the degree to which we're under the influence of this distortion. So then the second of these universal qualities that we see is unsatisfactoriness is how I'm going to say it for now. 
And the distortion, the word is dukkha, of course, and often translated as suffering, but it's not quite right for this instant. And you know, the distortion is that we often see what is actually dukkha as happiness. You know, we see things that are clearly not satisfying as being uh, capable of delivering lasting happiness. So the, the verse I just read talked about being obsessed with gathering flowers, which means kind of chasing after sense pleasures. So in the words of Andrew Olinsky, uh, conventional strategies for human happiness entail various ways of maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. The problem is that pleasure is not ultimately sustainable and pain is not avoidable. The shortcoming of our usual approaches is that they treat the symptoms rather than addressing the underlying causes of the predicament namely that unsatisfactoriness is part of the very fabric of experience. So that's a little bit bluntly stated. Let me uh, temper it a little bit by saying that life is unsatisfactory when it's lived in this ordinary mode of chasing after pleasure and trying to avoid pain. And when we, when we live in that way, we feel a constant sense of lack. You know, it's like as if uh, we're unfulfilled, or we need something, or we're insecure, or we have to be guarded, or things just feel off. And that's uh, sort of a casual but reasonable definition also of dukkha is, is offness. So even in high option cultures like ours, where we often have many choices about things, and even during periods where our lives are basically going well, we can constantly create and act out of this sense of lack, of lack of fulfillment. So that's the dukkha quality. And luckily practice helps us do something about that. I'll have more to say about um, dukkha as a so-called universal characteristic later, because not everybody is happy with the idea that dukkha is is universal. Um, so this is, yeah. So then let's go on to the to the third of these distortions and lenses that we have, and that and and the universal quality is of not self. We, um, so we have anicca, dukkha, and anatta, not self. And the distortion is that we very often see what is not self as self. You know, we identify all kinds of things as being about us or being uh, ours. Uh, this is about taking things as me or mine. The clearest way that we do this, of course, is with our body. So, you know, fingernails, right? They're mine, definitely mine. I had to cut them earlier today. Um, so when they're on, there's something I have to take care of because they're mine. Nobody else is gonna do that. But as soon as I cut it and the little cutting has fallen on the bathroom counter, it doesn't really look like me anymore. You know, it's not as appealing. It's not as, um, I don't feel really attached to it. If somebody were to do something with it, I don't care. So it's different, right, than when it's attached to the body. So we're, um, you know, we have a certain uh, way of seeing these parts as, as me. There was a wonderful biologist from the 20th century 
named Lewis Thomas, who was very reflective about life and, and the body and biology and how it all works. And he wrote some kind of nice essays about just reflecting on what he had learned in the course of his career. So this is from one of his essays. If I were informed tomorrow that I was in direct communication with my liver and could now take over, I would become deeply depressed. Nothing would save me and my liver if I were in charge, for I am, to face the facts squarely, considerably less intelligent than my liver. I am, moreover, constitutionally unable to make hepatic decisions, and I prefer not to be obliged to ever. I would not be able to think of the first thing to do. So really, you know, um, do you want to be in charge of your liver? It, it, the liver controls the largest number of chemicals in the whole body. It's responsible for secreting, I don't know, a couple hundred of them or something. It's ridiculous. And I, it's like the ultimate management nightmare to figure out when to secrete what and how much and all of this. And so, you know, it's, it's definitely he was onto something. And yet it all works, right? I mean, all of your livers are working reasonably well in order for you to be here. Just, you know, if the liver doesn't work, it's a big, big problem. So, you know, what is the body and who is in charge? Who is making those hepatic decisions? Uh, and yet they happen. So it's stated kind of more bluntly in the Anatta Lakana Sutta, the Buddha's second discourse, where he says, it is not possible to have it a form. May my form be thus, may my form not be thus. I think this is meant to be an actual, like serious reflection and, and practice. So for example, could you be three inches taller? Come on, make it happen. Or how about, um, how about 10 years younger? No. So you know, it's easy enough to see that we don't have total control over the body. It's not really ours to control. Uh, but what about the mind? You know, aren't we maybe more defined? Never mind the body. Everybody can see that that ages over time. But what about the mind? Aren't we defined by our views, our personality, the experiences that we've had that have shaped how we think? Um, that's got to be me. Um, but no, even these are not really under our control. After all, they were conditioned by all these things that have happened. And um, we weren't completely in control of those conditions. Now, this is not to say that the only kind of self that's permitted is one that we have control over. There could be you know, an essential self that is completely the subject of um, the whim of a god or something like that. I understand that this is not a perfect litmus test, but um, it's worth studying. So instead of you know, convincing you logically, I'll, I'll instead say, uh, what we're talking about here is our patterns. When we talk about our mind, you know, what is our, our mind, our mental habits, is that we have typical behaviors and thoughts that feel so cozy and they fit so tightly into our life that they just, we don't even see them. It all just feels like me, like how it is. So, um, and yet we can start to see that even through practice, especially these start to change. 
it's quite amazing. Uh, things that we thought really characterized us can fade away. This is from uh, Rodney Smith's book, Stepping Out of Self-Deception. Many of these patterns, meaning these mental habits, are based on fear and doubt. When they are unconscious, we act from them without realizing it and without feeling the pain of it. When these become more conscious, we suddenly feel the pain of the fear and doubt, and it can feel like our lives are getting more painful. But when we have set our intention on freedom, we have no choice. We feel the pain and let the pattern wither on the vine through the light of awareness. We must have faith that it will indeed wither and the persistence and the patience to see that through. So here we're getting a little clue that the um, uh, light of awareness, right? The, the mind is luminous, except for these visiting defilements, that through the light of awareness, these patterns wither on the vine. So if we can get in touch with this, um, the way the mind is, the clear seeing, the awareness, and just use that as the to, to watch these patterns of mind, we will see them shift and change over time. So, you know, we, um, we mistake impersonal experience, which is just unfolding for something that is me or mine. But I, I think about how Joseph Goldstein said that only six things ever happen, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and activities of the mind. So, Next time you think things are complicated, just check it out. It's probably one of those six. And, um, you know, these things just uh, continue to happen again and again without necessarily the need for a, to impute a self onto them. So these three that I've named of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self are often called the three characteristics in Dharma talks. Uh, they were summarized more succinctly by Ruth King, who says that nothing is permanent, perfect, or personal, which I kind of like. Um, so I'm, ha I'm happy enough to call these the three characteristics because that's how they're typically named in the present day Theravada tradition. But in the suttas, it might be interesting to know that they are not called this, actually. Um, I called that sutta the Anatalakana Sutta, but that's a title that was put onto the sutta by the later um, people who wrote down these, these texts. And it doesn't actually appear, that phrase doesn't actually appear in the sutta, nor does it particularly appear maybe anywhere else in the canon. Almost never, I'll say almost never. I haven't done a full search to know if it's actually never. But this word lakana, which means characteristic, uh, is not used. And that's not what they're called. So what is used? You know, what are these three called? They are clearly a set that's talked about a lot. Um, most often references to Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta don't have some kind of a qualifying label as to what they are. But in some cases, they are referred to as perceptions. Sanya, the, one of the five aggregates. So this fits nicely with the distortions of perception that I mentioned in connection with each one. Those um, distortions, by the way, have a of seeing uh, permanence where it's impermanent, seeing satisfactoriness where it's dukkha, and seeing self where it's not self. 
those have a name. Those are called the vipalasa, the distortions of mind, distortions of perception. There's a fourth one also, but, it, um, but we're not talking about it tonight. So then um, there are a bunch of suttas that talk about anicca sanya, dukkha sanya, and anatta sanya, often together. Although there is a sutta where um, anicca sanya is uh, alone, that's MN62. But often they're together, and they're um, they're not they're not a set though. Just like these are the three perceptions, they're always part of some larger set of perceptions. Like there's one um, the five perceptions of anicca, dukkha, anatta, and abandoning and fading away, or abandoning and dispassion of the five. And then there are other even other suttas that have 10 perceptions that include those ones plus a bunch of other ones like um, repulsiveness of food and non-beauty of the body and other things we're supposed to pay attention to. So um, it's interesting, right? Because things like abandoning and fading away are not exactly perceptions. They're more like mental activities. So we have to consider then what is meant here by this by the word sanya? You know, why are we using the word sanya, often translated as perception or conception? So then, if it's something that's conditioned by the mind, created by the mind, constructed by the mind, then what we're saying is that anicca, dukkha, and anatta are practices or trainings of the mind. So the suttas um, actually. Um, so if you want references, it's AN 572 and AN 749. Both of these refer to um, these perceptions as things that should be developed and cultivated. So this implies that there's some deliberateness on our part about seeing things in this way. In fact, AN 749 even gives examples of how this development might not be fulfilled yet and what it looks like when it is fulfilled. So it says one should cultivate the uh, perception of anicca when it is not completely fulfilled, you'll have these problems in your mind still. And when it is completely fulfilled, you'll experience this kind of peace. And the same thing for dukkha and anatta. So that's kind of interesting is that we're actually asked to deliberately see things as impermanent, to deliberately see things that are impermanent as unsatisfactory, and to deliberately see things that are not satisfactory, don't provide lasting happiness as not self. Um, we can train ourselves this way. I actually have a practice myself of seeing things as empty. So when I remember throughout the day, I tend to, I view things deliberately through the lens of emptiness, helps strengthen that um, understanding in my mind. So now I'm gonna get back to what I hinted at earlier about this characteristic of dukkha, which people don't like, because you know you say, everything is marked by the universal characteristic of dukkha. And everybody who knows that dukkha means suffering. And so they say, well, what does that mean? Every experience is suffering? What are these Buddhists, you know, as a bunch of life-denying, um, you know, depressing, uh, this, is, this is not the world I want to live in. And anyway, I just had a lovely meal with my partner and it was not dukkha, you know, it was great. I enjoyed it. So, you know, what is this universal characteristic? 
But does it sound different if I say that um, actually what we are to do is train the mind to consider that no experience that is changing can be ultimately happiness, you know, that can bring lasting ultimate happiness. That starts to sound wise, you know, starts to sound wise to train our mind that the things that we enjoy in life are fine. I'm enjoying it in this moment, but let me remember, this is not going to do it for me. This is not the ultimate thing. Even the best experience while we're having it, it can be very wise to consider, oh yeah, and this is going to end. Um, and certainly the ones that, of course, are unsatisfactory in and of themselves that are painful or difficult, we can remember, oh, right, these ones change also. Definitely they're not satisfactory. So, um, yeah. And, you know, and then in addition, we could train the mind to see the things that are not providing lasting happiness cannot form an essential self um, in some way. And again, that's only one slice of selfhood is that it should be something satisfying. But um, if, if we see these as trainings, then we might be willing to try them out. And you don't have to take, as always, don't take my word for it. Try out these perceptions and see if your life goes better. If you walk around noticing that everything shifts and changes um, and therefore it's not worth getting too wrapped up in them. And also reminding yourself that things that are um, changing are not going to be ultimately satisfying. Maybe you'll find that you're a little bit less clingy, graspy because of this. And does that then work for you? Does that provide less dukkha in your life to practice in that way? I'm going to venture yes, but don't believe me. Find out for yourself. You can try it out. And if you decide after you know, a month of doing this that it isn't helping you at all, okay, don't do it. But the Buddha suggests that we cultivate and develop these perceptions. So now um, I just want to provide one little counterbalance before I end, which is that one could hear that idea of, oh, okay, we just train our mind to perceive these qualities. That doesn't mean that they're the universal lakana. Um, instead, what we have is Buddhist positive psychology, where what we're doing is we're creating our experience. Everything that we're doing along the path is an invention of the mind. I'm going to invent my way through these perceptions, which are then going to liberate the mind. Um, we know too much about psychology these days, and there are a lot of people who are there are actually spiritual practitioners who go around with the idea that you can cultivate a powerful mind, which you can then use to get what you need in the world. I can visualize, you know, more money coming into my life, and that's going to then manifest for me when I cultivate my mind in the right way by tapping into the universal abundance of the universe. I'm, I'm hamming it up a little bit. Um, so I want to make sure that these ideas about perception are not interpreted as we're literally creating this and we're creating our reality and that's how you walk the path. Um, it is also that we are tuning into something that is a natural unfolding. The Buddha is clear in other suttas that um, these uh, things that he calls perceptions that we should cultivate also come about naturally. So for example, AN 10.2, uh, is a, a whole sutta about 
it is not necessary for an act of will to, um, for example, to feel blamelessness if we've been ethical. It's very natural that if we've been ethical, we will feel blameless. And then it goes on. If one is blameless, then one will feel joy. It's just natural that if you don't have any feeling of blame or guilt and shame in your mind, you're going to be joyful. And so then it goes on and it goes on all the way through uh, seeing things clearly, becoming disenchanted, becoming dispassionate, becoming liberated. All of these things are natural unfoldings that require no act of will. So I'm putting this in as a counterbalance um, to point out that we're not only creating our perceptions, but maybe what we're doing then, you know, how can we reconcile? You should cultivate perception this way and these perceptions are natural and unfold by themselves. How do we hold those which sound contradictory? I think the Buddha is asking us to train our mind to attune to the way nature actually works. And we, we aren't, that's why we have these visiting defilements, these distortions, we're insane. You know, we, we are, or, the ordinary mind is not operating correctly. It's not in line with how things actually work. And that's why we have so much dukkha. That's why we have so much trouble in our life. So he says, why don't you start pointing your mind in this direction? And then you'll discover that that's actually how things work. And um, then awakening becomes not something we have to do and try and make happen and build up and all of that. But it's really a, an attunement or a de-obscuration, a removing of what was not correct anyway, this distorted dark lens. So the wise mind attunes to anicca, dukkha, and anatta as a training, and because that's how things are, they're natural. So I hope that lightens up a little bit the idea of this universal characteristic lakana, um, while still preserving the fact that the path is natural and there is something going on out there in nature that we can learn and, and know. So these are my thoughts on the three perceptions. And I'm wondering if you have any questions or comments. The end. Um, so is it just distortion? Um, is that basically looking at ignorance the, with the quality? Yeah, other forms of ignorance, yeah. It's described in the text too. It's usually yeah. called ignorance. Yeah. yeah, those would be types of ignorance, ways in which we're not seeing clearly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, ignorance and desire are the main distortions. Okay. Yeah. And then, um, Steve, you unmuted also. Did you have something? I forgot I had unmuted um, because I was going to, going to appreciate your talking about this very basic thing because um, I'm always interested in finding <clears throat> uh, good ways to talk about the very basic things that are you'd think it wouldn't be so hard to talk about. But if you're, if I'm wanting to 
discuss this with somebody who isn't thinking along these lines, it isn't all that easy. So thank you. No. Yeah, okay. thank you very much. Very good. Yeah, sometimes it's it doesn't help to explain it all. This is a dedicated practitioners group, so I feel like I can uh, offer some little some of this detail. But if you're talking with someone who doesn't have any background in Buddhism or in practice, this isn't going to make any sense, or may not. Um, but one approach uh, can be simply to just offer an alternative way of perceiving something without trying to justify it, explain it, say it's better, get them to believe it, convince them. But you're just kind of like planting a seed of wisdom of, well, you know, I see it this way or could also be seen this way. You know, you just throw in a different, um, you know, a different uh, view of something and, you know, may not land right away, but it's kind of been put in there and maybe somebody will think later, oh yeah, that's kind of interesting. So playing with perception is a great way to walk the path if we, we do it wisely. And that's also helpful with other people. Heidi. I'm, I'm, I'm finding this framing really helpful and timely for, for myself. Um, my mother died at the age of 105 in February. And so there's been a lot about going through her estate and, um, and then I just moved from a place that I'd lived in for 22 years. So I had to go through all of my stuff, you know, so there's been, and, and just the last few days, I went through a lot of papers that had been in my mother's estate that my sister had sent to me letters that my mother and I exchanged, you know, 50 years ago and wow. you know, stuff like that. So there's been a lot of, it's brought up a lot of emotion and a lot of awareness of Anicca and just, you know, like just as her stuff that was so precious to her and, and her personality that was so vivid is just gone, you know, and then it makes me very aware that my stuff that's so precious to me and my my personality that I think is so vivid to me right now, you know, I'm so alive, it's going to be gone. And it's, it's been very emotional and, and pretty difficult. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I think that this conversation tonight has helped me see it as an opportunity for really some wisdom, some gaining some, some understanding just in the reality of of this and and of uh, a chance to let go of delusion and denial about these things. Excellent. Yeah. Not fun, but yeah, it's an opportunity. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Nicholas. I wanted to share that uh me and my blank be thus is a really great mental note. Like if I'm, I've noticed like when I'm irritated at a roommate or a friend, often I'll just, the note will be, oh, may my friend be thus. And it's kind of, wow, yeah, there's a moment of me really trying to exert self onto another being or I had really bad indigestion a few days ago and then I kind of noticed, wow, may my stomach be thus is really kind of what's dominating the mind. It's a really useful note actually. 
Great. Thank you for sharing that. That's a nice practice. You real when you realize that what we're declaring is may this be as I want it to be. It's um, it can be well, it's some wisdom coming in, so it can ease the mind a little bit. See that habit. Mm, nice. Anything else? I guess we're nearing the end, but if there were one more. Can I ask Nicholas, Nicholas, what did you mean exactly that you you would say, may my stomach be thus to remind yourself that you're trying to impose that? Yeah, that was like a note for how I felt the mind was relating to that experience. Got it. Okay, thank you very much. The the control mindset. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you everyone for coming and I hope this may um, provide some opportunities to practice with the developing and cultivating the perceptions of Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta, and seeing how that uh, serves as a support for the, I hope, the easing of suffering in your life. That would be great. So, um, and then the, the next one of these will be next, the first Tuesday of December, which I think is the 7th. So I will... See you then, if not sooner, in some of the other areas. All right. Be well. Thank you. You can unmute and say goodbye if you want. Bye. Thank you, Kim. That was great. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.